Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey guys, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back to yet another episode of Lip Service. Feeling kind of optimistic. Seems like a lot of people I know are starting to get the vaccine. I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to return to life somewhat normality, maybe in uh, August, September. So fingers crossed. Hope you guys are all staying healthy and staying safe out there. We got a really exciting show today. We've got Miles Kennedy. This guy is a busy guy. He sings for Alter Bridge. He's got a brand new solo album out that we'll talk about. And obviously he sings for Slash and the Conspirators. Great guy. I didn't know him before. So this was a real treat. Just such a great aura about him and, and, and amazing singer. So that was really a treat. And then second part of this interview is Damon Johnson, an old, old friend. He's worked with Thin Lizzy, Black Star Riders. You might know him from his band Brother Came from many years in the 90s and also played guitar in Alice Cooper. He's got a great new solo album out, and we'll talk about that too. So it's a two-parter. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. It's a long interview. Two parts. First part coming up, Miles Kennedy. And the second part, Damon Johnson. So coming up in a moment, Mr. Miles Kennedy on Lip Service. Stay tuned. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. And more, more importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, Miles. Hey. How are you, brother? Good. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks for coming on. My guest today is a very, very busy guy. He is the lead singer of Alter Bridge, solo artist, and the lead singer of Slash and the Conspirators. Welcome to the show, Miles Kennedy. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You too, my brother. It's funny. I think we were both on a Zoom call for Matt Sorum's 60th birthday, probably the greatest Zoom call of great. my life. Is it? Did I see you on that? Yeah. That was pretty yeah. deluxe. I mean... Wow. I mean, talk about a crazy, I was on that call, Miles, and it was like Ringo Starr, it was Clive Davis, I saw you on there, and I was like, oh, it'd be great to meet you, but the best Zoom call I've ever been on in my entire life. 
Yeah, it was it was just kind of a who's who, and there was so many people, and yeah, it was. And then they the kind of the product the production value was, <laughs> it was incredible. Right? It was incredible. Well, leave it to Matt Sorum, one of a great friend and, and ace, and one of the greatest drummers to to throw a Zoom call, the most epic Zoom call of all time. But um, anyway, it's so great to have you here. I want to talk about your new record, obviously your path and your journey in life, which is super exciting, uh, and all the music that you've been creating. So let's kind of take it back to the beginning, you know how you started you grew up uh, i think you grew up in idaho right pretty close yeah i mean we're we're literally 40 well actually yes i did live in idaho for about uh two or three years when we first moved from the east coast so we lived in a little place called nez Perce, idaho and um then we ended up making it over here to spokane and that's been home ever since when spokane's like you know we're 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 honorary we're it's kind of like we're it's almost like we're canada and idaho <laughs> we're so close to each border and now and now you're currently in spokane right correct yeah i've been awesome. in for a long and time. talking about the beginning miles when you grew up you grew up in like quite a religious family i think right and and music was all around you and i know like stevie wonder was a big influence and obviously a lot of the rock stuff van halen to whoever right but tell me a little bit about your upbringing kind of what gave you that drive to get into music early on yeah, I mean, I think that for me, the genesis was, um, well, probably two things. My, my biological father was, was really into music. Um, from what my mom told me, he always had Scott Joplin playing or, or, you know, he was just a big audiophile and music buff, built his own stereo speakers. And, and, um, and then in, I remember I was four years old and I was watching Sesame Street. And it was the episode where Stevie Wonder was on. And that was, that was the moment where I was like, okay whatever's happening there that's 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 it because <laughs> you your parents were quite religious right because was music really like a thing in your household growing up yeah they were they were i was initially brought into like the christian science uh that was that was their jam and then um but with that said my my biological father still he loved music and then when he passed away my mom remarried a Methodist minister. Wow. So yeah, religion was kind of a thing. And yeah. um, obviously, and I kind of had to try and make sense of all that as the as the years went on, kind of where I stood with all of it. So it was a it was an interesting dynamic. Yeah, because initially, you were just actually wanted to be a guitar player, right? Yeah, I did. I just wanted to I, I never wanted to be a singer. <laughs> uh, there are days when I still wonder. Um, <laughs> I, I love I love the guitar. You know, it's just um, there's it's been kind of my salvation for really since I was a teenager. Um, but when I started writing songs, it became necessary to, to see the vision through and, and go ahead and man up and sing, you know, it's, it's, it, I, I never really wanted to be the, the front guy, you know, the guy that stands at the center of the stage. Yeah. I find myself very, um, I don't, I don't think I'm the, the most interesting, uh, you know, frontman should be, there's that thing that kind of yeah, like, of course. that thing is loose and it's fun to watch what's going to happen every night. I don't know if I'm really hardwired that way. I just, uh, I do the best I can. Because initially it's funny because I would imagine growing up in such a religious household, you're listening to Zeppelin and Van Halen and obviously even stuff we touched upon like Stevie Wonder, right? Were your parents trying to sort of suppress the musicality in you or they're encouraging you to go on and, and kind of this, this musical path that you were on? My mother definitely encouraged it. In fact, she at first kind of insisted on it. I, when I was 
In the third grade, she sat me down. She said, son, tomorrow night, the uh, local music store is showing up and they're going to offer us uh, band rentals. So <laughs> I want you to go pick out an instrument. We're going to rent you whatever you want. And so I started with the trumpet. So th there was that aspect. But when I discovered rock and roll, um, then it kind of got, um, it got a little, it was a little different because suddenly I... We, we, I'll never forget, we went to Kmart and I'd saved up my allowance and there was a cassette I wanted. You remember cassettes? Yeah, of course. Eight tracks even, actually. Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> Peter Frampton. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wanted to get this record called Screaming for Vengeance by- Judas Priest. Priest, right? Yeah. yeah. My father, my stepfather by that point, who was a Methodist ministry, is like, Judas Priest? You, you can't, you're not bringing that into the house. So, so we made a deal, it's like, We'll buy the cassette. He has to listen to the whole cassette with me. So I'll never forget, as long as I live, my my father, Glenn, laying down on the kitchen on the kitchen floor with my boombox my boom at his head, <laughs> listening to the lyrics to some of these songs. And he finally just leans up and he goes, I don't understand a thing he's saying. <laughs> By the way, those lyrics take on a whole new meaning now, probably from when you were younger too, right? Right. <laughs> so, right. And did he, did he approve of it? Because I, later on, the PMRC and Rob Halford. And there was a whole thing with, with Judas Priest. And, you know, obviously they were banning a lot of lyrics back then. And his sister was going to Congress. And But did your parents, especially coming from a, a very religious background, were they like, listen to Screaming for Vengeance and you should definitely get into music? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just, I don't know. It was, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was, uh, I think they finally, they finally came around, um, my folks did, they finally came around when they saw how happy it made me, you know, when they saw yeah. that, because I was, I was a misfit, I was a late bloomer, I was a small kid, I couldn't keep up with my friends in sports, and sports was such a big thing where I went to school, and so finding the guitar was, I really, I think it kind of, I don't want to say it saved me, but it certainly gave me my identity, and it kept me out of trouble, uh, and so I think for that, they were grateful. You know, all right, just let him do his thing. Yeah. Were you going down a path of drugs and drinking at that point, or what, were you never really into that stuff, or was that later on in life? That was later on. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I discovered I discovered some of that uh, a little, much later than most people do. So, um, but early, yeah, in my teenage years, for the most part, I walked the straight and narrow. I got busted drinking on my my drummer got me really drunk one night on my 17th birthday, and when I got home, my father. Boy, he gave me the talk. It was such a, it should be a textbook conversation that parents should have with their kids because it's basically scared me out of drinking for 10 years. Yeah. yeah. I so. think it's the same thing my brother did to me when I was younger. So so initially you were a guitar teacher, right? And I, I believe that was what, in your like early 20s? Yeah. So I started kind of dabbling in it um, not too soon after I started playing, probably, in, probably when I was 15 or 16, just here and there to get some, just some extra money. Um, I teach friends and whatnot. Uh, but then, yeah, in my 20s, when I, I would basically teach during the day and uh, I would teach from like two to five or six. And then I would go gig at night from like eight to 12 to 1 a.m. I was just wow. I was hustling. And uh, then then on some days I would do session gigs. I was just a, a kind of obsessed for in my in my early 20s with just playing music any way I could. Yeah, so walk me through from that point to actually how you met the guys in Alter Bridge and how it all started to you, because there was a band before that, you had a record deal, I think around Warner's maybe, 
Um, but that whole process and how that journey went for you. Sure. Yeah. So I, so during that period in the early nineties, when, um, you know, grunge was taking over and, and, uh, when we lived just over the hill from Seattle where it was all happening. So I decided that that was their thing. And I was trying to find my voice. Most of my friends moved to Seattle to kind of take part in what was happening. And I figured I'm going to stay here in Spokane and trying to find out who I am as a, as a musician, as a writer. So I went through a heavy, um, R and B phase, uh, basically, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and, and Tower of Power. And I was really into all that stuff. Even had a horn player in the band that, that I was playing at the time. So I did that through the, through the mid nineties. And then, um, the Mayfield forwards born. And that was a band that had some of my friends from high school and we were half of the band lived in Seattle. Half of us lived in Spokane and we ended up getting a, a deal with, with Sony at, at, at Epic Records and that was that was a really big deal, you know, especially cons considering we're from Spokane. So that kind of started the whole trajectory. We made a record with Jerry Harrison from the Talking sure. Heads. Talking Heads, sure. Yeah, and that was that was cool. And then we did uh, a lot of touring. And one of the tours we did was with a band that was just starting to climb the charts, as they say, called Creed. And you know, we did that run and kind of we weren't even really close. I mean, I'd, I'd interacted a little bit with their drummer, Scott, and, and met Mark uh, once. And for the most part, just kind of went on with life. Five years later, I get a call and like, hey, we're thinking of putting a, a, a different band together. And so, um, yeah, that was about 2003. And Creed was disbanding. Obviously, you knew the band. And had you interacted with, besides that one interaction, you guys opening up for them, were you really in touch with the guys at that point or not really? No, that was what was really amazing was that we were, I'm, you know, we weren't, we weren't really bros. It was, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was just like the phone rang out of the blue and I was like, wow, okay, well, let's, uh, let's, let's explore, let's see what happens. And so, so you start that, obviously this, this is a, a, an amazing path and journey. And at a certain point you meet Susan Silver, right? And when does she get involved with the band and how did you guys meet? Susan's great. Um, so she... So what happened there was in about 95, one of the guys that I played with in um, many of the bands in high school and so on, he was one of the, my friends who moved to Seattle and he was playing with uh, a band called Inflatable Soul, which was fronted by Peter Cornell, Chris Cornell's brother and the Katie and Susie, the, the, their, his, his sisters. And they were, they were great. They were just really wonderful people. And so Joel, my friend Joel Tipke was playing with them. Long story short, he... I don't know if he left the band or was just on hiatus. I took over for him for a while on guitar with them. And we had a great time. Susan had uh, Susan Silver at Silver Management had a guy named Eric Hoppy who was who was part of the team. And he basically took me under his wing during that period and then brought Susan in and, and she took me under her wing. And and um, before you knew it, you know, once the Mayfield Four, the Mayfield Four was my other band I was playing in at the time, along with Inflatable Soul. Yeah, they, they helped get that deal. So that was probably ninety six, ninety seven when all that happened. Uh, we made a four song demo. Susan and Eric sent it out to some friends uh, in the music biz, and before we know it, we have like all these 
you know, big labels showing up to our shows. And, and we basically made this demo just so we could get gigs at, on the weekends. You know, it was a four song demo we made in like 30 hours at some studio in Seattle. Yeah. Before we know it, like so-and-so from the head of A&R from Sony's flying in to see you guys today, the head of A&R at RC. And it was, it was the thing you dream of, you know, where limos are pulling up to our house to fly us to <laughs> drive us to the airport and fly us to New York to meet with the big wigs. And yeah, it was, it was a, it was a really fun time. Nerve wracking a little bit. You yeah. bet it was nerve wracking. It was <laughs> so nerve wracking. Cause I didn't really, you know, I didn't expect any of that to happen. I always had such realistic expectations. You know, I, I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to play at night and teach during the day, maybe go back to school and get a degree so I could teach at, you know, school. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't expect any of that. And so suddenly you're thrust into that, that magical world. And yeah. yeah. At what point did your parents say to you, you finally got a job miles because my dad always said to me, I played music my entire life growing up. It is not until I think actually I, I play with Courtney Love and he got to see me play at the Hollywood Bowl a couple of years ago. And he finally said, you finally got a job. And I was like, dad, I've been doing this my whole life. I never made a lot of money at it. But yeah, I think I've had a job my whole life playing music, but or a good portion of it. But it's been the same all along. But at what point were your parents like really proud of you? And they really saw that as a career path for you? It's a good question, because about two years prior to when things finally started happening, I, I remember going to like a some sort of diner and having breakfast with my my stepdad and he we had a basically he said son how much longer are you going to keep doing this before you go back to school it was that talk right right yeah, i've had those yeah just, yeah just give me till i'm 25 and it wasn't even give me i mean i was going to do what i wanted to do it just i think he was just looking out for you know hope hoping you know that you're they they want what's best for their kids and yeah that was very endearing but i think they finally got it when I was just, I was, it was obvious I was able to kind of stay afloat, you know, that I was, I was no longer, um, living on top ramen and cause you know, there was, there were a lot of, my twenties were lean, man. Yeah, I mean, I've been like, there. yeah. Right. But those are, those are the best. I'll never forget that. Jerry Harrison actually said that once at, we just were getting ready to make the record with him and we were all still broke and it was, you know, just getting by. But he said something that was really interesting. He said, you know, these are the times that you will look back on as the, the best times when you're just coming up with ranks. And yeah, like, really, this is, is that really true? And in <laughs> retrospect, I think to some, to some degree, he was right. I mean, there was also a lot of stuff that sucked during that period, but, um, but I think just that all for one, one for all, it's all new. And and as you know, at that time in the business, it was a very different time than it is now. It was kind of the last, kind of the last gasp of the recording industry as we knew it, which which had yeah. really, you know, kind of the everything that happened from the 70s till through the end of the 90s were a real special time in the music industry it was a real it was a real feast i think for for yeah it was just a lot of records being sold and then streaming came in and and everyone found out that lars was right the entire time <laughs> right. aware of what's coming yeah definitely well along the way some incredible things happened to you. i mean i definitely want to touch base on the infamous zeppelin story right which it's like that's definitely a pinch me moment probably more more so than maybe any other moment in your life, I would imagine, because growing up, Zeppelin was a huge band for you, right? And for all of us, such a big inspiration. So talk to me about how you met Jason Bonham and how eventually you got to jam with those. What an incredible, you're probably one of like five people in the whole world that's ever jammed with Zeppelin. Yeah, it was, it was, um, 
it was an, it was an insane, uh, wonderful experience. Um, I think that, so I met, I met, uh, Jason, uh, during Rockstar. So he was in the, the Rockstar film and there was a point, we were just hanging out in between takes and I knew he was proud of his father's legacy. And I, and I thought as, as somebody who also lost his father at a young age, I, I, I felt, I felt a certain kindred spirit there. And so we just started talking and, and, um, and I expressed how much his father's legacy in the band meant to me. And he was so appreciative and so, um, I mean, I, I wasn't sure if that was going to turn him off. Initially I was, I was kind of like, after I said, it, I was like, Oh, I don't know if I should have said that, but he was really cool. Yeah. So fast forward, uh, about seven years later, eight years later, whatever it was. And he called me out of the blue or texted me and, and just, um, said, Hey, can you, can you buzz me? I was on tour over in, in, in Europe. And I thought maybe he had a friend who wanted to come to a show. Right. Can you get my cousin in? It's plus yeah, five. Exactly. That's what I thought it was. And essentially the, the call was, um, Hey, I, I, can you do me a favor? Uh, me and some friends are, are, are jamming this weekend in London. Could you, would you mind coming over? And I'm like, well, who? And then he friends. friends. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was how it, how it started. He kind of got the ball rolling. So did he eventually say it's Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, or do you know you actually didn't know who you were going to jam with? Yeah, he told me, and and it was just, yeah, I was pretty stunned. I think yeah. the, the next day we actually had a show um, at Rock uh, Rock and Ring at Nuremberg, and 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 a big festival over there. And I just remember, you know, there's a big track that, that where a lot of the dressing rooms are. There's like a there's like a it's like a sports thing there so I remember just walking the circumference of the track in a daze because <laughs> I was just like I'm supposed to get on a plane this weekend and and do this thing is this real is this even happening is am I you know am I living in some sort of <laughs> dream <laughs> what is going on here and how do you prep to jam with Zeppelin well he he told me a few of the songs they were they were jamming so I reviewed over those and um but I'd listened to them so many times obviously growing up I mean that was that was Zeppelin was probably the biggest for for me especially yeah. formative years um and uh so really it was more than anything it was a psychological preparation just just to kind of keep it together and not fanboy out too much and I, yeah. I have to admit that I failed miserably in the sense <laughs> that I, um, I fanboyed out in the first five minutes. <laughs> I mean, how could you not? It's incredible. Yeah. Right. So would you, what was it? Was it like, uh, was the set list all songs we knew? Was it new material you were working on? Was this all like, what, what did they have you play? Well, the, the first day they were, they had a number of songs from the, from the catalog. Uh, one, the one moment I remember really well was no quarter, uh, which is one of my favorites. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, playing that was um, one of the highlights for me. And so I was supposed to go back to I, the next day I had a show um, with with Alter Bridge at the Download Festival. So I was supposed to hop on a train and head 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 that way in the UK. And uh, so we wrapped up and had like a few hours to kill. And so they're like, well, you know, we've, we've played the songs we want to play. We've got a couple songs here we've been working on would you do you want to just kind of jam over the top and that was the for me like a hearing something that 
no one had heard. Yeah. And that was in the genesis of its, um, uh, you know, formation, um, and having the opportunity to kind of put your take on it over the top as a singer. Wow. I mean, that was incredible. It's incredible. Talk about the biggest pinch me moment probably ever. I would imagine jamming with Zeppelin is the pinnacle of anyone's career that's ever been a musician. So that's incredible. Talk to me about how you met Slash and how you got to join his band. Obviously you've done, I think, what is it? Five records now with Alter Bridge? I think six. Five or six, right? Yeah. And, and Walk the Sky 2.0 was just released. So talk to me about how you guys met, how you connected. I know there's a Volver story in there somewhere too, which I'd love to hear about. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, yeah, initially the Velvet Revolver um, side of it, it was in 2002. And I think someone had heard the second Mayfield 4 record. And so Slash reached out to see if I'd be interested in auditioning for what would become Velvet Revolver. They, they hadn't found Scott Weiland yet. Long story short, I was in a weird stage that at that point, all, uh, Mayfield 4 was still together, and I can't remember if we were still under our deal or not with, with Sony, but I was really a bit disillusioned with the music industry, and mm -hmm. so uh, he sent a demo. I, I put three, I worked on three of the tracks, sat on them for about two weeks, and then just never sent them back, and he called, and he's like, hey, are you going to send that demo back? I was like, man, I'm beyond flattered that you all thought of me to, to audition for this, but I'm, I, I just don't feel like this is the right, it's right for me right now. And so just moved on, said goodbye. And, and, um, then in 2009, um, he reached out again. And what's funny is he doesn't remember the first time we brought that up. I go, do you remember you called me like in 2000? I did. <laughs> but yeah, you, you did actually. Um, I would have figured that Matt would have reached out to you because Matt's always the one with his hands and everything too. So, well, Matt, I think Matt did. Interestingly enough, Matt reached out and I think Duff did in 2009, in earlier 2009. Okay. And after Scott had left the band. And once again, it was, it was just interesting timing. Alter Bridge was kind of on hiatus because the guys had gotten back together with with the previous band to do a run, to do a, a record and a tour. But the the plan was to get back together and do this. So they asked if I'd be interested. Duff called and had a cool conversation, and, and I think I talked to Matt as well. And it was it was just one of those things. Well, if I commit to this, I don't know how this would work with right. bands. So that ended up not happening. Then Slash called about his solo record and asked if I would be interested in doing a song on that. That happened. And then we discussed there would be a tour on that for a few months in the summer of 2010. And I thought, well, that would, yeah, that'd be fine. Cause then we could, I'll get back together with Alter Bridge and we'll just go on and do our thing. Little did I know that that tour would turn into you know, years later. Yeah. 11 years, 10 years later, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And it was, so it was just a slow build. And by, by the time I didn't even really realize what, as it was happening, that I was basically going to com be committing to living on the road for the next decade of my life between both bands. It was insane. Yeah. You're, you're definitely a busy guy. Are there any great stories on some of the early performances that you did with Slash and, uh, some of the first shows you guys played together that you remember? Um, 
I mean, it was just a lot of fun. It was, um, I remember playing the stadium in, in Paris. We were opening for ACDC. And that was a, as an ACDC fan, that was a, a, a one of those pinch me moment, moments, you know, before the, I think it was after we'd finished, Brian Johnson came in and hello to everybody. And then, then we got to watch them do their show. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was great. It was just a, a lot of really great memories of touring, t- touring all over the world and meeting, you know, a lot of people that you, uh, look up to and respect and, and, uh, it was cool. Yeah. Any of those songs that really speak to you from like the appetite era that you perform oh. now as slash that you're just so in tune with? Yeah. I, you know, for me, I always loved, uh, paradise city. I just thought, yeah. and that was such an anthem for, for my generation. You know, that was for, I think that song came out was when I was in high school. So, uh, performing that, um, was always fun. Incredible. Have you been sending uh, music back and forth with Slash at this point and the Alter Bridge guys just writing? Because I know you obviously we're going to talk about your new record in a second, but where is it at with you and Slash in terms of writing for yet another record? Yeah, right. The uh, the back and forth process has been going on now for for months. So lots of stuff in the works there. And um, we'll just see what happens as far as a release and all that. Obviously, these are crazy times with with the covid. Definitely, definitely. Well, tell me about the new record. Let's jump to that. I actually know that you drove down to Florida, which is incredible because I hate driving. So kudos for driving probably the furthest anyone can drive in the States to do this record because it was because of COVID, right? I, I guess just being precautious or whatever. Yeah, it was. I'm a, I, I wasn't I wasn't sure what would be appropriate at that point. So, um, you know, I, I recorded a batch of songs in my in my studio, demoed them uh, most of last year. And um and I'm sorry, March, like March to July, and then knew that uh, Elvis, uh, my producer, Michael Basket, Michael Basket, I would call him Elvis because he looks just like Elvis Presley. It's, it's uncanny. <laughs> and um, and so, yeah, instead of, plus there was a lot of older gear that I was wanting to use on this record. Some of my uh, older favorite vintage guitars. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I want to send all this. I'd, I'd rather this be with me. So I thought, well, instead of flying and sending all this stuff, let's just rent uh, like a some sort of vehicle that will fit all of our gear. And I called up my drummer Zia, and uh, we he met me here in Spokane, and we met uh, our our bass player Tim in in I think somewhere in Tennessee. After, you know, we drove two days straight. I think we made it there, and we left we left on a Friday. I'm sorry. We left on a Saturday morning here in Spokane. I think we made it to Orlando in, gosh, I want to say it was Tuesday. It was it was crazy. It's like old school touring, like back in the day, right? Getting in the van and going. Correct. <laughs> and this new record is considerably heavier than your first solo album. Talk about there's actually a lot of blues, and it almost sounds like Texas blues a lot of it. So I want to talk about the process and sort of the you know the way you guys recorded this. Was it live in the studio? Did you guys all get in the room and play? Yeah, the let's see here. I think parts of it were live. Um, I know Z is such an amazing drummer. Uh, the, the beauty of working with a guy of that caliber is that you know I don't have to worry about things being all chopped up, and it's like the take you get is is what they're going to they're going to build from there. He's just got a great uh, pocket, uh, great natural feel, and 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 it's interesting with him because we played Zia was 
we played together as kids. My yeah. first experiences in bar bands were with, with Zia. And so we played for so many years together between the 80s and then in the 90s with the Mayfield Four and then getting back together during this period. It's, it's really strange because his, his pocket is where my feet was where I feel things as well. It's just, I guess, after years and years and years of hearing two and four, right, you know, right there, it's it's two and four is just a little bit, you know, it's just a little bit back, which I like. It's shit, which is just right for, for how I feel things as well. And like a Joey Kramer kind of groove. Yeah. Kind of like a Joey Kramer. Exactly. It's kind of got almost like that slow motion thing. Yeah, yeah. He hits really hard, and I love. See, I can't play drums to save my life, so I have a thing for uh, for watching drummers and listening to drummers because I, I envy drummers. I just yeah. think, even though they're always they always get the butt of the jokes, like you know, how many drummers does it take to you know all that, those? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, drummers have a hard job. But it's a lot harder than people realize. Although growing up, I always wished that I played something simpler so I didn't have to transport all those drums because I, I had like this Neil Peart kid, and it was like playing at high schools and it was like two vehicles were needed to transport the kids. So Rototoms? I had every, I had Rototoms, I had Dragon Drums, I had all that stuff. Um, but, but this new record, besides being considerably sort of a louder affair, do you also feel the need to step outside the kind of music you normally make with Alter Bridge and Slash to sort of fulfill your musical path? Yeah, without, without a doubt. Yeah. I yeah. That's the, that's the purpose of doing solo records. I feel like if you're going to make, if you're going to have the opportunity to step out and do your own thing, um, take some, take a few chances and, and, uh, kind of fill the creative. Well, I, you know, with this record, one could argue that because it's plugged in, it's not an acoustic fair, that it might be a little more congruent with what I do in some of the other bands, but I feel like there's still enough of the other to, to separate it. Definitely. Uh, and, and I, it's way bluesier for sure. And, and definitely a different feel. No yeah. question. And and I'd love to talk about the single and sort of about a zombie apocalypse, right? Right. <laughs> More or less like prepare, like prepping for one, right? Yeah. Because I mean, we all have ran out of toilet paper and paper towels during this pandemic. So it was that the inspiration, the impetus for, for writing that? It was. I mean, I, I think that as everything was, was happening, um, I just suddenly became very aware. I was watching how my wife and I were reacting and yeah, we were the people buying up lots of toilet paper and whatever else thinking the end was coming and the sky is falling. So I still don't understand why toilet paper. I don't understand why we're all like, is there, is there going to be a shortage of toilet paper with a zombie apocalypse? I don't know, but it, it's, it's really interesting. So I think someone's going to, should write a book about that and it's going to be, you know, 20 years from now, they're going to look at, look back at that part of the, uh, <laughs> of the drama and be like, why the toilet paper? There's not water, nothing, just no. toilet paper. No, it's, it was like the new gold. It was fascinating. So, so yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's about doomsday prepping essentially. And the idea of just stepping back and perhaps chilling out, you know, and yeah. not going to be, it could be, you know, who knows? It could have ended up, who knows where things can go at the end of the day. And I guess it's better to be safe than sorry, but um, yeah, just trying to gain some perspective. Let's talk about the marketing of the new record miles. I mean, you can't obviously touring. I actually, I don't know if you just noticed, but certain festivals like the Reading festival is now going on sale for this summer. Uh, I think Queens of the stone age are playing it. I mean, any gigs on the horizon for this? Are you prepping that far in advance? Do you feel like, you know, Europe would be a place that you would sort of tour this record first? Good question. Um, 
we are we're in negotiations with you know our agent with promoters trying to figure out how to navigate um in these uh, you know different times um so i think it's it's uh it's a little too early for me to to know exact details mm. um i know that initially uh i had some festivals that i was supposed to do in europe in 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 the summer but i don't know where that stands i mean that just keeps that keeps moving around but I am happy to hear that what's going on with Reading, and that's that's really a, a definite glimmer of hope. Definitely. I still feel like we may not be ready. It might be a little bit early for music festivals, but we'll have to see. In terms of marketing the new record, obviously you're doing stuff like this. You're doing podcasts, and I'm sure you're going to do some – will you be doing any live performances? I hope so. I, ho- I, would, I would hope that uh, we can figure some way of – of navigating you know these these uh unique times and because yeah you got it you need to promote and let people know that you've got a record coming out and Definitely. So, yeah I, maybe it'll be zoom maybe it'll be you know just live streams i don't i'm not sure they're i let the the, the powers that be facilitate all that and then i'll show up <laughs> when you and, and where are you at with the alter bridge guys are you guys also writing new material we are not yet we're still um i think everybody's kind of hunkered down in their own solo project. I know Marcus Tremonti's in that world right now. Uh, obviously I've got this. So I would I would say we'll start thinking about that more towards the end of the year, early next year. But I for speaking for myself as a writer, I, I need to refill the creative well. I feel like uh you know it's having done the the Alter Bridge record and then the solo record, the second solo record. And so yeah, it's just I need to I need to to get those creative juices built back up again. I mean, you're a busy guy. You're in three bands, so there's a, there's a lot going on. So the album is actually available May 14th, Ides of March, and I think it's available for pre-order now in a lot of different formats, right? Vinyl, maybe cassette, could be cassette, right? A-track as well. A-track, which is amazing. Make sure you follow Miles on all forms of social media. You file slash uh, with Miles Kennedy, Alter Bridge, everything. Hey, man, I really appreciate you coming on. I hope to hang with you in person one day. Maybe love with that. Matt Sorum, we'll, we'll grab a lunch or something when you're yeah. back in L.A. That would be great, man. I would love awesome. it. Awesome. And make sure you pick up the new record, Ides of March, out May 14th. Right on. Awesome. Thank Thanks, Miles. Thank See you. you soon. All right. Cool. Bye. You're listening to Lips L.A. with Scott Lips. Hey, guys. It's Scott. Welcome back to the second portion of Lip Service today. First portion with Miles Kennedy coming up in just a moment, Mr. Damon Johnson. Damon Johnson was the singer of a band that I love, my brother Kane. He's a friend. He also, actually, you would probably know him from being in Alice Cooper's band and Thin Lizzy. And also, he has a great new solo record he just released. You should definitely know this artist. He's a great guy, written songs from Stevie Nicks to Steven Tyler. His new record, Battle Lessons, is amazing. He is an all around incredible guy. We'll talk about the new album. We'll get into all things Thin Lizzy. Maybe we'll talk about Steven Tyler, Stevie Nicks, Alice Cooper. Who knows? But Damon Johnson coming up next in just a moment here on Lip Service, part two. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. How are you, my brother? Scott Lips. I am so thrilled about this, man. My next guest is an old friend. I'm super excited to see you. And I'm actually, it's, it's a bummer we don't get to see each other in person anymore this is the way we do things this day and age right it's over zoom it's it's an interview but we're old old friends the lead singer brother kane solo artist alice cooper's band then lizzie black star rider the amazing damon johnson not only a friend but one of my favorite artists truth be told oh scott lips thank you so much <laughs> man i 
like I like I said to you, I've been so thrilled to uh, to come on with you. Congratulations, man! On, Thank you, brother. On your show, on your podcast, uh, I, I'm a fan. I like everything you just <laughs> said about me. Thank you very much. It's reciprocated the other well, way. I, and I also figured for some reason I don't know. I know Miles Kennedy, so he's. This is actually a two part interview. And so, are you friendly with Miles? Yeah, man. Miles and I, you know, we we never really toured together. We we've been on some festival dates together, but I was very aware of Miles early in his career when he was in the Mayfield Four, and then of course all the success he's had with Alter Bridge and now with Slash. So we've, you know, he I, he probably heard some Brother Kane on the radio in in the '90s. So, but now more than anything, man, we're like social media friends. I'm he's always you know saying nice stuff on my instagram and things like that so that's uh, awesome well i want to talk about your new record obviously battle lessons you just got an incredible review in classic rock magazine so there's no way we can talk about that but before that take me back i mean we met god i want to say it was like mid 90s right damon with marty Fredrickson, who i used to play drums for who actually collaborated with you many years ago i don't know if you guys see each other that much but i think you're both in nashville now yeah we're both here uh, Marty's here most of the time, Scott. And I think you and I actually met in the early 90s. Um, you remember when Marty lived in that, uh, you know, early in his life, you know, I think his son Max was just a baby. Yeah. They lived out in an apartment in Orange County somewhere. Yeah, yeah. This, this I, I think an apartment, then a house. He had so many houses along the way, but yeah. Yeah, this was this was just an apartment, man. This was before they moved to Monrovia. But I swear I met you then because you guys had played in bands together. Yeah. And and I remember you came by to get some gear or something like that. And I, I would see you often if I was out there writing with yeah. Marty. I, I know we went to dinner a couple of times. And yeah. Do you guys see each other anymore? You're in Nashville, both of you, I believe. We see each other a little bit, not as much as I would like. Um, but, you know, Marty living here, Scott, was one of the main reasons that my wife, Linda, and I you know, wanted to come here. We had a list of about five people. It's like, well, hey, Marty's there. Some of my Alice Cooper bandmates at the time, they were here. And uh, yeah, you know, there's no question that Marty was such a massive part, Scott, of, of my my career. I mean, I, I don't, if there hadn't have been, if I hadn't have met Marty uh, in 1991, there wouldn't be a Brother Kane that means there wouldn't have been an Alice Cooper gig for me. And I wouldn't be talking to you on lip service right now. <laughs> well, well, let's take it back to the beginning because you grew up um, in Alabama, right? And I want to talk about the early days of Brother Kane, one of my favorite bands. And I think I actually came to Alabama once and saw you guys play, record or something back in the day. But I love the band. I love what you're doing now. There's so much that's happened in between. But kind of let's take it back to the beginning. Like, how did the band start? Tell me about your early beginnings and inception of Brother Kane. Yeah, I had moved to Birmingham in 1987 because uh, I grew up in a really small town, Scott, uh, about two hours north of Birmingham. There was a scene in Birmingham that was a really popular regional band there that asked me to join their band. Uh, it was it was like a dream for me. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe these guys want me to play with them. And, you know, they had some infrastructure. They had a song on the radio. They had done some bigger tours in the region. And uh, most importantly, they had a pretty good manager. Well, that band lasted about another year and a half. I did a couple of other things. I was really inspired by, you know, Appetite for Destruction, the Guns N' Roses record. 
the Black Crows had come out, uh, I think in 1989. And I was just like, man, I want to try to put my own band together. So that manager uh, was my friend Conrad Rayfield. And he was really pivotal in me. You know, I just went into the clubs in Birmingham and I was like, all right, I know this guy that's a bass player. We need to find a drummer. You need to find a singer. That's kind of how it all got started. And uh, I still feel like it was a pretty incredible accomplishment for a band, a rock and roll band out of Birmingham, Alabama, to get a deal anytime. I, you know, I think you can count on one hand the number of rock artists there yeah. are from Alabama and the other four in the drive-by truckers, you know, so. <laughs> well, the truth be told, you had an incredible chemistry, plus the songs were amazing. I mean, there's so many great songs in the catalog of Brother, Brother Cannon. So I kind of want to talk about what was the songwriting process like back then, the chemistry within the band? I mean, you made a few records and then obviously you went on to do a lot of great things. We'll talk about Thin Lizzy. We'll talk about Alice Cooper and, of course, your solo career now. But, you know, that chemistry that you guys had, it was so incredible. I mean, how did you find those players? How did the songwriting process take place? Thank you for saying that, Scott. It was very much, there was some luck involved. I had such a singular focus of like, all right, we're going to try and get a deal with the label because we knew that's what it, that's how it worked then. That's the only way you could get it off the ground. You had, had to have a label, that marketing behind it, all of that. We didn't really have any songs, man. We had a couple of songs from the last band I was in before I started Brother Kane. And again, I can't overstate the importance of, uh, we, we were able to get a development deal with Virgin Records uh, Aaron Jacobus, you probably met Aaron at some I was point. actually going to ask you because I used to work with Aaron years ago. I think he signed my band to a development deal at A&M years ago. Um, I bet he did. That's yeah, he was. so another weird connection, but I, I think I totally forgot about that. But yeah, so he's a guy that I don't know what he does now, but he was a virgin A&M before then. So you meet Aaron and are you guys showcasing for him or he just hears one of your demos? He had heard the demo, but he came to see us play. And we actually had a lead singer at that time. And he was so knocked out by the songs and gratefully by my guitar playing and just kind of the way I carried myself. He was like, all right, let's see if we can help Damon find a singer. So over the course of that six months, man, you know what happened? He heard me singing in a club doing, I literally sang a Thin Lizzy cover one night. <laughs> Crazy as that is. Yeah. And he was like, oh, look, we got to try this. This, this sounds really good. You know, I didn't really want to be the singer, Scott. That's the truth, man. I've, I've, I've resisted it completely, even up until just the last four or five years. And now I love it. I'm like, all right, man, I'm cool being the guy in the middle. But, you know, as a band, we just we would just get in the room and jam. Somebody had a riff. I would sit there with pen and paper and try to make something out of it. Again, meeting Marty was a game changer. Marty was further down the path as a songwriter than I was. He taught me so much, Scott. He taught me about the melody, how important the melody of the vocal was. That's his genius. You know that. Yeah. So uh, for those of you who don't know, I talk about Marty a lot on the show. In fact, I guess I'm due to give him a call, but Marty's <laughs> this incredible songwriter, Marty Fredrickson. He's worked with so many artists from you guys to Aerosmith to countless others. And years ago, I played drums with them. And I mean, he used to produce these demos that were better. He would do them by himself and he would play drums and bass and guitar and sing. And it was like he had like the Def Leppard vocals going and the Metallica crunch. And I'd never heard anything like it. So he went on to be an incredibly successful producer and songwriter. You guys work with him on Got No Shame. And at a certain point, you guys get a call because the album starts to really take off. 
and you're asked to open up for Aerosmith on tour, which is incredible. So walk me through how that happened for like an unknown band, like you said. And by the way, I have this conversation, Damon, with so many guitar players, they can't find singers. So they're like, you know what? I'll just start singing. That's essentially what happened with you, I guess. Yeah, and I guess for us as guitar players, we've got such a handle already on the musical side of it. You know, we're thinking about arrangements and parts. And so, you know, let's be honest, a lot of the singers in my early bands were kind of idiots, you know, and you would just think like, well, man, if that guy can do it, I can do it. (laughs) And as you said, Birmingham is not a hotbed of talent for singers, I would imagine, right? No, there wasn't a lot. I mean, you know, at that point, there were definitely a lot of guys in the bars doing covers, doing cover songs and just replicating whatever they saw on MTV. And, you know, the L.A., you know, the whole L.A. Sunset Strip scene was still a big influence worldwide, not just nationwide. But, yeah, we were fortunate, Scott. Aaron stuck with us, uh, wrote those songs with Marty. That raised the bar. We got to make the record. We put the record out. We got really lucky, man. Our first single, Got No Shame, started happening at radio. And, uh, you know, I just remember that first year feeling like a bit of a blur. And imagine the thrill, man. We've pulled over at a truck stop to get gas in the van. And I go call the office just to check in. And they say, hey, man, we just got eight Aerosmith dates. And <laughs> I'll like, never what? forget. Oh, yeah. Dropping the phone and running across the parking lot, you know, back to the van, telling the guys. Every, everybody was thrilled. But, yeah, <clears throat> I was. Because really, I think Tyler had heard the, the band, right? And he was a fan of the band, too, from what I remember. Yeah, Joe and Steven had both heard the song on the radio. You know, our, our name was on a short list at that time. And, you know, we had some good people that were working behind us and kind of vouching for us. The other thing we had going for us, Scott, is where our work ethic was unmatched. You know, if a radio station said, hey, can the guys come by the station? We always said yes. Well, can they do the morning show? We always said yes. (laughs) Can you bring a guitar and play a song? Always yes. Not every, not all the bands would do that, man. They're like, no, I'm not up until two in the afternoon. I can't, I can't make that happen. Do you think that could be recreated today, Damon? It's funny, like rock is in such an interesting place right now. Like, I wonder if that could happen for a young band now these days. I mean, first of all, there's really not a lot of young rock bands, right? If you want to, I mean, there's really, we had Greta Van Fleet on the show the other day, but there's not a lot of bands like that that are really happening at the moment, rock bands. And I feel like kids don't want to grow up right now to be rock stars. I mean, they want to be possibly TikTok stars or hip hop stars or maybe pop stars, but it's not like a thing like it used to be when you and I were growing up. No, it's not, Scott. And honestly, brother, I don't think it's ever going to come back. You know, we were we were lucky to be alive and be the age we were in that time period. Uh, 70s, 80s and 90s, man, rock music was the cultural influence. Definitely. And somewhere in the, you know, the early 2000s, that kind of shifted. Um, You know, the Internet has been an incredible thing for me now as an artist, a veteran artist there's never been a better time for me to kind of run my business like I'm doing it now, but man, it's made it tough for rock and roll because you know, all the, all the stations were rock and you were hearing rock and roll on pop stations. And you know what I'm saying? You remember like, of course, like I remember even when Lincoln park first hit, man, you would hear a Lincoln park song on the pop station. Yeah. That's never again. Well, I hope it'll come back at some point, but God knows. But at a certain point, I mean, along the way, it's, I mean, you have this great success with Brother Kane. 
And then the band disbands and, and you go on to have some great gigs. Obviously, you get to play guitar for Alice Cooper. And obviously, you do some incredible other things like your, your favorite band growing up was Thin Lizzy. And I know Borderline is actually, I think, one of your favorite Thin Lizzy songs. So Thank to you. get to eventually join that band and, and then the band sort of morphs to Black Star Riders. But how incredible was that for you? I mean, it had to be such a surreal experience to join your it's like me getting to join Zeppelin or something at some point, which will never happen, by the way. But uh, you know, Scott, that I joined Thin Lizzy almost 10 years ago, and it still it still blows my mind. And anytime someone, any random person is like, oh, what about this guy? Oh, this happened to him. He grew up loving this band. You know, it's his favorite band. And then he becomes a professional and then he joins that very band. It's, you know, it's straight out of that Mark Wahlberg movie, Rockstar, Rockstar yeah. you know, <laughs> which funny enough, Miles Kennedy was in. <laughs> so it's... That's right. He was. He was great in that. Yeah. But um. Yeah. You know, Scott, yeah, I'm sure, you know, the we sent you the resume, man. I mean, it, I've just been so fortunate that, again, my work ethic would open some doors for me that I could have never dreamt possible. Again, man, I never lived anywhere except Alabama. I never moved to L.A. as much as I wanted to or would love to or New York. I, I stayed in Alabama. I had I had kids, you know, that were growing up and I wanted to be near them. And yeah. Um, you know, the, the thin Lizzie thing was just a, a case of me being at the right place at the right time. You'll like this story briefly. I was with Alice Cooper. We did a date in Dublin, Ireland of all places. Mm. The bill that night was Def Leppard, Alice Cooper, thin Lizzie. Wow. And I couldn't wait to go see thin Lizzie being a fan. And the other guitar player was Scott Gorm at that time was Richard Fortas from Guns oh, N' Roses. Who actually played with a little bit. I did a couple of gigs with at some point. It's great. Richard's, Richard's amazing. Yeah. Well, that, that very night, we're all hanging out in the hallway. And Richard tells my buddy in the Alice Cooper band, he says, oh, by the way, I got to go back to GNR. These guys are going to need another guitar player. And my friend said, man, those guys should get Johnson. He knows, he knows those Thin Lizzy songs better than anybody. He could play your whole set right now, which was true. <laughs> and, and bro, that's exactly what happened. We got on the bus to drive to the next town. And my friend told me that. And I was like, man, that's really cool of you. That, that's never going to happen. And the next week I got a call from Thin Lizzy's manager. And, Incredible. you know, it took a, took a little while, the conversations. I was committed to tour with Alice the rest of that year. And to tell you the truth, man, I kind of resisted when they first made the offer. I'm like, man, I can't bail out on Alice. And Alice was incredible, Scott. He just laughed. He goes, Damon, I've had 35 guitar players <laughs> my life. He goes, I'm going to be fine. You have to join. You have to go play with them. <laughs> uh, by the way, I don't know what, that's an amazing story, Damon. I don't know what Alice Cooper is drinking, but the guy could still be 50 years old. I mean, he's like 75 and he still kind of looks the same out there rocking and whatever he's drinking or doing every day to do that. I hope well, that I if he, if he were on this interview, Scott, he would say it's what he's not drinking. That's the secret. <laughs> it's <laughs> the know, golf. <laughs> yeah. the, go the golf and the not drinking. That's, right, that's right. what's happening. So, so you have this incredible career, Damon. It's 2020. Obviously, this pandemic hits. And I noticed that you're doing these a lot of you're pivoting and doing a lot of great things like online. Right. So you're doing you had this live broadcast you did with, with Richie Faulkner, I believe, from Priest not uh, well, about a month ago or so. Right. Uh, it actually was back in the fall. That, that okay. was back in uh, back in October. But yeah, that was incredible, man. We actually performed a tribute to Thin Lizzy. <clears throat> and uh, Richie lives here now. Talk about Nashville. Now we have this British 
guitar player, you know, that lives just down the street here. And so we've spent a lot of time together. We've toured together and we've become friends. And, you know, he grew up on Thin Lizzy just like me. I mean, over there in the UK, you may know, Scott, but Thin Lizzy is, is the equivalent of Aerosmith. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're there. the big, huge. They're, they're, they're huge over there. So, yeah. so Richie, one of my favorite guitar players anyway, man, the guy's just, he shreds in Judas Priest. And so that was, uh, that was a great experience. But I, yeah, man, I have had to pivot. We've all had to pivot. Um, and we're still pivoting. Yeah. You know, if you'd have told me, uh, as you know, next week, it's going to be the one year anniversary of the shutdown. Yeah. I, w- I was in the studio making my new record battle lessons. I was in the vocal booth and I'll never forget. My producer came over the talk back and said, Hey man, they just canceled the NBA season, the whole season. And I remember that sinking feeling of like, okay, this is, this is real. This is real. And you know, if you'd have told me right then, one year from now, it's still going to be the pandemic. There's no way I would have believed it. Yeah, it's so interesting, Damon. I remember at that same time period, everyone was, uh, and I was talking to Gavin Rosdale about this some months back, like when it first happened, we just, we still don't know that much about it, but it was like, he was saying, we don't know if you can get it from a tree or from a door handle or wherever you could get it. So I remember that same time, it was around the same time. And I remember the same news kind of came in and I was sitting in my office and Everyone's like, we're going home. We need to leave right now. It's like it was like there was like a fire. Meanwhile, like you said, nobody thought that this thing would drag out for another year. But and we're still finding so much about it. But, you know, it's great that you've been able to do all these things and obviously releasing a record during this time period. So I want to talk about the new record battle lessons. Right. I don't know if you guys have dates on on the books coming up for maybe the fall yet or the winter. Is that a time period that you're looking at yet? There's a couple of dates on the book, Scott. Nothing major. Uh, There's no question we're waiting you know, for touring to kind of resume normally, even as even if it's just outdoor venues. Um, in a perfect world, we could be part of a package. You know, we could go out with two or three other bands and, and make it like that. But it's the great unknown. Yeah, it's completely unknown how you know what the path is going to look like out of this. It's going to be a grand experiment on a lot of levels. And the thing I'm excited about, man, is you know my band, the Get Ready. It's just three of us. We're a trio. You know, in the spirit of anybody from Green Day to ZZ Top or Nirvana or Rush or whatever. So we can get in and out quick, man. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's easier for us to say, yeah, we'll come and play because there's, there's, it's, it's not this big entourage or this big operation that we got to roll out. So, you know, we're optimistic that that's going to work in our favor. Plus, you know, we just dropped a, a good record and people are talking about it. And, the record's amazing. Um, and it's interesting, Damon, because for an artist like yourself, that's you've had so many facets to your career, right? You've been on tour and opened up for Aerosmith. You've done the Alice Cooper thing, the Thin Lizzy thing. Now you put out your, I think this is what, your second or third solo record because you put out an acoustic record too. Yeah, this is technically, I guess, technically my fourth solo record. Uh, I feel like the last two were proper focused, you know, hard rock records with lots of guitar and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, in the, in the beginning, Scott, I just looked at solo releases as like a side project, almost yeah. like something to do for fun. I love playing solo acoustic. Um, that's been really fulfilling for me. It's been helpful for my singing and just my confidence. So, <clears throat> you know, I just felt like uh, everything kind of came together three years ago when I decided to leave Black Star Riders, which is the band I was in for about five years. And then, you know, just focus totally, man, on my solo thing. And 
when the pandemic hit, I realized it's like, wow, man, I made the right decision because if I was still just in a band with a bunch of other guys, it would, everything would just be frozen. You know, it's so, funny, Damon, uh, a lot, a lot of artists talk about, and we talk about it all the time, like how do artists make it these days? And it really comes down to the songwriting and your songwriting for me has always been some of my favorite songwriting out there. Like I said, I literally have a Damon Johnson playlist on my Spotify. <laughs> and it's because you've also done all these like side projects along the way, right? You've had other bands where like, Red Halo and all these other bands, but also your solo stuff and a lot of the acoustic stuff. Talk to me about the songwriting process for this new record and talk to me about some of your favorite tracks on the record. And then we're going to actually kind of have a surprise every now and then. We spoke about it. We have some artists that are playing a couple tunes on the show. So we're going to do one or two tunes. We're going to try with the Zoom and see what happens. We did a little sound check before this. So hopefully it'll work <laughs> out pretty good. But let's talk about Battle Lessons and, and your favorite tracks on the record and how the record came to be. Thank you, Scott. Um, this record, I wrote the majority of these songs with yet another old friend from back in the early Birmingham days, my friend Jim Troglin. And, you know, our kids have grown up together. Our wives are best friends. You know, we, we just have a real comfort, a real trust with each other. And, you know, this room I'm talking to you in right now, Scott, is just my little office. And, you know, Jim and I will just send text messages back and forth. I'll have a riff. He'll send me a story or I might have a title, whatever. We just bounce it back and forth. And then I sit here and I really hammer on it, man. Um, you know, I'll get a little drum track going. I'll, I'll start to build the track. And then it's all about the vocal, telling the story, uh, trying to make it as authentic as possible. And I, I just can't overstate how I have been able to benefit from sticking with it for all these years, man. I mean, it's hard to believe that first Brother Kane record is... Uh, in two years, it'll be 30 years ago. That That's This <laughs> is crazy. So, you know, man, I've just stuck with it. I've had some great, uh, you know, teachers, people that I've learned from, obviously, Marty, people like that. So, man, I just, I've never felt more inspired, Scott. I've never felt like I had more to say. There's tons to sing about. I never have a shortage of riffs. Uh, this record in particular, Battle Lessons, it is absolutely the record that 19 year old Damon Johnson, you know, dreamed of making one day because it's just all, you know, tempo and <clears throat> energy and it's great. The drums. I know you love the drums, man. Yeah. Uh, Nick, Nick Raskulinix, just, you know, Grammy winning producer, of the Food yeah. Fighters and Rush and Alice and Chains killed it, man. Uh, talk about uh, a relationship that's been pivotal for me since moving to Nashville. Nick has been, he's basically been the equivalent of Marty. Yeah. Marty in my early career. Nick now with what I'm doing now. Incredible. So were you guys all in the same room when you cut the songs? Was it cut live? Oh yeah. We, we, we cut, you know, we did three songs right before the pandemic started. Then everything went into lockdown. So we were able to finally get back into the studio. I think it was July. You know, the cases had gone down. They had eased the restrictions. Everybody showed up <clears throat> wearing masks, you know, very super vigilant, you know, staying, <laughs> staying as far apart as we could. And but did you test and everything first before you recorded? Well, we, we didn't, you know, Nick said we didn't have to. Uh, he had been tested because he was producing. Uh, I think he was working with Evanescence at that time. And, you know, some of these bigger bands got, you know, their record companies have issued like these strict rules and guidelines. How, you know, why am I telling you? You've already talked to dozens of these artists. I'm sure they've told yeah. you, man. You know, my record company says I can't leave the house. I can't, you know, somebody's got to go to the post office for me, <clears throat> whatever. Um, 
Which is why we're so, doing this over Zoom, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But yeah, man, we, you know, we had we had to at least be in the room together to to uh, to work out the arrangements and and put it all together. And you know, and since then you've done a bunch of live performances because I watched a couple of them and they're great. So you're taking requests. I think you almost did, you did a Christmas one, maybe from what I recall, right? Um, yeah, I did a I did an acoustic one by myself for Christmas. Yeah, I think I think the Get Ready has done four live streams now, and. Um, you're the first person for me to tell because I just got off the phone with my manager this morning, but we're going to do one um, either the last week of March or first week of April. We're going to play Battle Lessons <clears throat> live in its entirety. Amazing. Uh, it's going to be great, man. We have a lot of rehearsal to do, man. We're Everybody's out of shape. <laughs> one of the things David at Classic Rock said about uh, the album is that the choruses are so big. The songs are so great. Talk yourself into anything. Can't clap any louder. Amazing songs. So I'm not sure which song we're going to play now, but uh, we did a little sound check, guys. We're going to try this out, see how it works out. But what songs are we going to play today, actually, for the audience? Well, I would love to perform the title track for you. Awesome. Um, I think this is the first. I, I, I played it for my daughter, uh, who lives in, uh, who, who lives out in Ventura, by the way. Oh, cool. Nice. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Scott, this is the title track. From the so talk to me about battle. battle Lessons, how it came about. There's a heavy, like, Lizzie vibe to this song, obviously. A real heavy riff, and it's great. Yeah, man, thank you. The Jim had sent me a track, and when I first heard it, I kind of blew it off because it sounded too much like The Trooper by Iron Maiden. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, and it, you know, it had a different title, and he asked me about it. He goes, what do you think? I said, I don't know, bro. I, I think that song's already been written. I don't know what to do about it. But thankfully, he kept pushing me. And um, he sent it to me again. He had done a little adjustment to the demo, and I stumbled onto this vocal melody. And I realized instantly, man, that it's one of the better, you know, vocal lines I've come up with in a long time. And uh, thankfully, uh, Nick Raskulinix felt the same way. And now, now the record's out, and, and this is the title track and the, and the first single. Awesome. So let's definitely try uh, Battle Essence. Also, maybe we'll get to Just Feel Better at some point, too, which would be great. It's a song that you wrote and Steven Tyler performed it. So just talk about a little bit how that song came about before we perform it, too. Sure, man. Um, yeah, Just Feel Better was an incredible song. I started writing that song with my friend Buck Johnson, who ironically is now the keyboard player in Aerosmith. Amazing. Um, but Buck, wanted, he had he had thoughts of making a solo record himself we spent a good amount of time together and we started four or five things and this was one of them well then buck took this idea and brought in his friend jamie houston and jamie had been through some incredible tragedy in his personal life and i didn't know it at the time but he took that event and it inspired that lyric and I'll never forget the day they sent me the, you know, the demo that they had created. And I was just like, guys, I'm, I'm so honored to be a part of this. This is one of the best songs I've ever heard. So, you know, imagine the thrill that about six months later, Jamie had sent the song to Clive Davis, uh, the legend. Just this little guy named Clive Davis. <clears throat> Clive Davis plays it for Carlos Santana, who loved it. And then Carlos is making a record and he says, well, why don't we call Steven and see if he'd want to sing it. And that's how it happened, man. So I ran into Stephen about, um, oh, I don't know. I guess it was probably eight years after that. 
And he, he remembered me from Brother Kane, but I said, by the way, brother, I was one of the co-writers of that song. And he couldn't believe it. He's like, what? You wrote that? <laughs> so what a thrill, man. You know, it was a, it was a single. It was, it was a, kind of a hit, man, in yeah. other countries. It, it, was, it was a hit down in Australia. It did really well, I think, in Italy. Yeah. Uh, whenever I'm touring over there, man, people show up with that Carlos Santana record, and they want me to sign it. It's, uh, it's, it's flattering. Amazing. So we're going to give it a go. By the way, guys, make sure you pick up or stream Battle Essence, an incredible record. Make sure you follow Damon Johnson on all social media, right? On the web, on Instagram, and also look out for dates coming up. So that's the most important thing. And the live streams, right? So Damon, how can people find these live streams that you're doing? Scott, everything's at DamonJohnson.com. We keep that thing updated as much as we do our social media. Everything's there. You can order the vinyl or the, the CD version there. The tour dates are there. We've already, I think there's a couple dates up there now, but they aren't until later in the summer. Uh, the live stream news will be there and any activity that uh, that we're doing is right there. So thank you for mentioning that. Of course, by the way, I hope you make it out to LA at some point, bro. We got to, you know, the Zoom thing is great, but it'd be great to actually hang out with my friend after this, you know, many years in person. Scott Lips, we have to take a walk on the beach together, have some yeah. good food. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, I'd love to see you, man. Yeah, we will. We will get to that for sure. So we're going to give it a go, guys. One of my favorite artists, Damon Johnson. Let's give this a whirl. We're going to we're trying out a couple different things. So we're going to see what sounds best here. But uh, just a few moments, you'll be hearing from us. uh, Not exactly live, but on Zoom.
were young, nothing to lose. We were bent up on the take a look at you and screaming, my God, what have I done? How could I ever feel like you were the one when we were young? Nothing to lose. We were bent up on the take a look at you and screaming, my God, what have I done? Amazing, amazing, amazing. Battle Lessons, a title track from the new album. Amazing, amazing track. So check it out, guys. Why don't we jump to Just Feel Better? All right. Sounds great. She said, I feel stranded And I can't tell anymore if I'm coming up, I'm going It's not how I planned it I've got the key to the door But it just won't open And I know, I know, I know Part of me says let it go Everything must have a season I don't, I don't, I don't Because it never worked before this time Gonna try anything that just felt better. Tell me what to do. You know I can't see through the haze around me. I do anything that just felt better. And I can't find my way. Yes, I need a change. I do anything that just feel better. Any little thing that just feel better. Says I need you to hold me I'm a little far from the shore And I'm afraid of sinking You're the only one who knows me And who doesn't ignore That my soul is weeping I know, I know, I know Part of me says let it go if that happens for a reason I don't, I don't, I don't Because it never worked before This time Gonna try anything to just feel better Tell me what to do You know I can't see through the haze around me I'd do anything to just feel better And I can't find my way Yes, I need a change I do anything that just felt better Any little thing that just felt better And I'm tired of holding on To all the things I ought to leave behind It's really getting old, yeah I think I need a little help this time Tell me what to do You know I can't see through the haze around me I'd do anything that just felt better And I can't find my way Yes, I need a change I'd do anything that just felt better Tell me what to do You know I can't see through the haze around me I'd do 
anything that just felt better Any little thing that just felt better oh. mm -hmm. Incredible. Bravo. One of my favorite Damon Johnson tracks. Just feel better. Um, guys, make sure you check out DamonJohnson.com for everything and check out Battle Lessons. Brother, so Bro great to see you. Scott Lips, thank you, man. Yeah, I've yeah. really enjoyed this, my friend. Continued success to you. Thank you, uh, Thank you so Come much. And, uh, take care, right. Scott. Much love. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. So there you have it, guys. Miles Kennedy and Damon Johnson. That was great actually hearing Damon play a couple of those tracks. We appreciate you tuning in. If you like the show, as always, please make sure to give us five stars on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else you get the podcast for free. We really appreciate it. Stay safe, and we'll see you soon. Coming up. Hey, how'd it do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcast